Hello. Hello, I'm Georgia. And I'm John. And today we're going to talk about the mac and cheese of movies. Mmm. Comfort Films Podcast. Season 2. Hello everyone and welcome to Comfort Films Podcast episode 81. 81? 81. Wow, we've been doing this a long time. <laughs> I know. Today, uh, we're going to be doing the fourth film of our Schools Out for Summer series, Adventureland, which came out on April 3rd, 2009. Just checked the day that it came out, and I realized it was your 32nd birthday. Another weird moment. <laughs> yeah, 32nd birthday. Wow. Yeah. Also appropriate, because, like, this film was very John-esque, I feel. Oh my god, yeah. It takes place in western Pennsylvania, where you your family's from where you were born. Yeah, and they shot it at Kennywood, which I used to go to as a kid. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's driving, you know, like this Plymouth Reliant. You which, know what I mean? Yes, I also had a Plymouth Reliant, so right? I get it. You know, so I mean, we have that, the music, we're right there. The Monroeville Mall. Oh my god, <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I, all these things just come together, and I'm just like, Wow. You know, like I, I also worked at a horrible, horrible place. I've talked about it before, but I literally worked at a place that did games, rides, arcade, three-par golf, mini golf, paddle boats, and it was literally across the street from a water treatment plant. So it smelled like shit like all the time. So like you're out having that special day and you get this nice breeze and this waft of shit i mean i have so many fucked up stories from that park so it's like oh my god you know what i mean it, and it's like dazed and confused this movie because it doesn't sugarcoat anything no. it really is true to the experience that you had back then and what blows my mind when i'm watching adventure land is it's like oh my god I remember so-and-so. It reminds me of people that I used to know. It reminds me of stories that I heard or things that I saw. You know what I mean? Like, all of these just really, you know, weird beats in my life that are played out in this. I mean, this movie is like, you know, not your traditional comfort film, I would say. But for me, it just brings back so many memories. Again, kind of like Dazed and Confused. Now, this is set in 1987, and for me, I worked at this park in the 90s. I worked there for one summer, just like Brennan. Uh, and that was the summer between my, you know, graduation of college and my first, oh, pardon me, my graduation of high school and my first year of college. So it was like that one kind of big swing year. Yeah. Yeah. For him, it's after graduation from college, before he goes to grad school. But I do think that that's such, like, a big transition time after you graduate. Yeah. So this really, you know, dovetails nicely into our School's Out theme. Um, because for Brennan, School's Out forever. Right? <laughs> I mean, he's planning to go back, but then it kind of gets messed up, you know, which is a big part of the movie. And, uh, yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up that it's set in 1987. Because for me... I'm not sure if I feel that that really reads. Um, there could be a few reasons for this. Probably um, it could have to do with the actors, you know. Um, but it also, I think, I kind of was meditating on it. And I think it is because I was more of the age that James Brennan is in the 90s. And for me, this really feels very 90s. Like, it takes me back to that time in my life when I was really unsure about what I was going to do next and, you know, what was going to happen. 
Um, because when I graduated from college, I had had a whole plan of where I was going and what I was going to do, but it got messed up at the last minute, not by anybody, but because of, you know, testing timeframes and all this kind of stuff. So I had actually planned to take a year off in between, but then I, you know, magically got into grad school at, in Massachusetts at a school I didn't even think of applying to in like April of my senior year. And that just like happened in a whirlwind and then suddenly I'm moving to Massachusetts. So it's just like a time when there's so much possibility and it's terrifying and exciting all at the same time. Right. And this really captures that in a way. And, you know, I think that there's an argument to be made that this is really a comforting film for a number of reasons. First of all, for us both, nostalgia. Mm -hmm. It so realistically captures, you know, being a certain type of person um, at this time in your life. Sure. Because, you know, we're similar to, to some of the characters in this. And that we don't always fit in perfectly and, you know, we're a little bit offbeat or odd. In my case and your case, oh, yeah. we majored in really not job-oriented <laughs> majors, no, you know. No, not, not even close. I mean, for college, I could have had a fifth year free uh, in business and I didn't want it. I, I didn't want to get a master's in business. I'm like, I don't want business. Now, it's very funny because I went ahead and started my own theater company thereafter, which was a 501c3, which was a business. So, you know, maybe business would have been pretty good to get a degree in. I don't <laughs> but, know. But, you know, the thing is, it's kind of what uh, that nice conversation that M and James have in the car where he's talking about how he wants to be a writer and he wants to go to journalism school and on, you know, he wants to be a travel writer, and she's like, well, why do you have to go to school for that? Yeah. You know, I mean, I would argue that you starting your own business was probably more of a learning experience than a fifth year in business could have been. Look, I, I totally agree with you. I also tried to get in, you know, to graduate school for theater, and that didn't happen either. And so it was just like this weird time when I got out of school, I was just kind of like bummed out and in the house. And like, I was like, what am I doing with my life? I'm like, I had the rejection letters all up on the fridge. I don't know what that was about. And like, I was like looking at like a job where I would hand out flyers at the mall. It was a really fucked up time. Yeah. I think though that, you know, starting a business as, you know, starting your own theater company was really a more fruitful choice. Because you learn a lot more, like, doing it. Yeah, I, I think doing it is really what it's about. And not having any any plan, any safety net can be invigorating. I mean, at the end of this film, we see, you know, Brennan going to New York. And he's basically going on a wing and a prayer. You know, he's like, I'm going to stay at the Y for a week. I'm going to figure it out. But, you know, at a certain age, it's like you want to break from the nest and you want to chase your dream. And to do that, you have to really kind of go outside of, you know, what you thought, like, the scheduled program would be. And that's a big problem with Brennan from the very beginning. It's like I had this plan. Yeah, I mean, and I get it. Like, I mean, I had the plan, too. When I found out, you know, I couldn't do the grad school program I planned to do, and then I got into this other program, I literally heard about, 
getting accepted the day I graduated. Wow. So I went to my graduation. I came back to my apartment, had a message on the machine from one of my teachers who already had heard that I had gotten accepted because um, the new teacher at my new school had called him and told him. Wow. And so he had called me and said, oh, you got to come over to the English department. We need to talk about this. You got into Clark. You got into Clark. And I literally turned around to my mom and stepdad and my best friend who I lived with in an apartment. And I was like, I don't think I want to do this. <laughs> like, I was terrified. Like this. No wasn't... fifth year free in business for Georgia either. We <laughs> well, say no. Fifth year in business probably would have been a better choice for me, too, because I, you know, went on to work in business like a lot. But uh, no, I went, <laughs> I wanted to study English. Like I was, you know, hard headed, like, like Brennan and like even more like Joel, probably, <laughs> you know, I, my favorite line in this movie is when <laughs> Brennan is looking for a job, you know, and he's finally saying, you like, I think I have to go work where Frigo does. And his parents are like, you can do better than that. And he says, I majored in comparative literature and Renaissance studies. Unless someone needs help restoring a fresco, I'm screwed. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of how I feel, because I majored in Shakespeare, basically. You know, literature and Renaissance studies. Uh, I get it. Um, and then, what is Joel studying Russian literature and Slavic languages? I mean, these are the kind of things that if you study them, you kind of have to become a teacher. Otherwise, you know, forget it. Well, I'll tell you something extremely funny. This is all on the same note. When I was in high school and I was hanging out with my friends, you know, and we'd always be doing comedy things, right? And we always did theater together. I remember one of the dads said to us, I don't know why you guys are still in school. You should just quit and go out on the road. If this is what you want to do, start now. This was high school, okay? I'm in college and I took voice. I, I had an opera teacher, you know, very, very great. Maria Ferranti, wonderful I love Maria. And she was like, look, if you're serious about wanting this career, you should just leave school now. You should go and do it. And so it's just like, wow, you know, it's kind of a shell shock, you know, when you hear that at first, because you kind of want that safety of the nest. You know, you kind of want to always have a backup plan, right? You want to have something else. But, you know, sometimes you find out that there is no backup plan. And if you want to pursue something that's outside of kind of the more standard jobs. And I'm not saying that as a cut down. Like, I wish that I wanted to do something that was a lot more uh, bankable. Like, oh if boy, I. Don't we all? Right. Like, I wanted to be a bank manager. I wanted to, like, I don't know. I wanted to do IT. Wall Street guy. Wall Street guy. Like IT. Everybody thought I was an IT guy. That was the funniest thing. Like, I, for years, everybody's like, can you fix my computer? And it's just because I looked like one. And, yeah. you know, I know a few things, but I, I'm not like the guy that you're going to call, you know, when you got a problem. I'm not showing up with the tools and opening it up. And I'm like, oh, you need a new motherboard. The fan is blown. <laughs> you know, let's fix these ports. Oh, you know, gosh. like, <laughs> let's get right in there. Yeah, I mean, people thought, I, people were always telling me I should be a doctor, I should be a lawyer. Wow, I wanted to be a lawyer. Well, because... Once. I was very smart in, like, high school and stuff, and so I think everybody was like, the smartest thing you can be is a doctor. Georgia should be a doctor. And I was like, ew, like, people? No. Yeah. I just didn't have any interest in that. I mean, I have 
I'm the kind of person who has kind of at least a limited interest in pretty much everything on planet Earth. So, yes, you know, I have a little bit of interest in medicine. But it's not enough of an interest that, like, I would be able to pursue that as a career, I don't think. And even though I probably could have done a lot more financially (laughs) if I had gone to law school or if I had, you know, switched over to be, you know, to get an MBA or something. I don't regret anything that I did because I feel like studying literature and the humanities is like learning about why we're here on planet Earth. And that makes more sense to me than anything else. Why are we here? Because <laughs> we're here. Roll the bones. Roll <laughs> well, the bones. See, if I don't Why know... does it happen? Because it happens. Roll the bones. And that, my friends, is Rush, of course. I'm sure many of you know that. Well, if I listen to Rush, I could have just skipped all the college, I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, we have Limelight, which shows up in yeah. this piece. Again, I laughed at that, and I said that, that that character trying to impress a girl by his knowledge of Rush was probably the wrong call. I tried to impress you just now. How did I do? I mean, not, not good. <laughs> I even like Rush. I'm like the... This woman, this woman chased me at a concert one time because I had a Rush t-shirt on. And she was like, we wanted to show you to our husband because we found the unicorn, a woman in a Rush t-shirt. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that. <laughs> like, oh, man. But, you know, I mean, that was my joke. Like, that, you know, he's trying to impress her by knowing limelight and playing it on drums. Yeah, like the air drumming is, like, really nice, too. Well, that tied into, like, Freaks and Geeks. With, like, uh, the Jason Segel character, and then he does Rush stuff again in I Love You Man. This movie has, like, a real kinship, and not just because of Martin Starr, but, like, it has that same feel that that show had, and I freaking love that show. Mm-hmm. So, it's no wonder that I similarly love this movie. Well, Freaks and Geeks is a similar thing. I mean, we had these very funny bits. We had this close group of friends and family. And we had, you know, hard times, right? We had good times. We had average times. We had bored times. You felt like you were actually seeing someone's life. And I feel like with Adventureland, it's a snapshot. And the director actually worked in a park like this in Long Island, you know, when he was younger. But that park had closed. So they went to Kennywood in Pennsylvania. Um, Again, another one that I want to bring up. The place that I worked in Massachusetts, this defunct place by the stinky shitter. Um, my boss, his name was actually Rigo, R-I-G-O. So, I mean, we have Frigo, the best friend in this, right? But I had Rigo, the Is boss. Is he the best friend? <laughs> I mean, okay, so Frigo, let's talk about it. So Frigo, it's like I've had a lot of people like Frigo in my life. And, you know, at times I've been Frigo. I've known other people who were Frigo. It's like, I feel like Frigo is a good person because when Brennan actually needs help, Frigo is there for him. He's trying to be, but he's otherwise kind of the worst. He is kind of the worst, but that's kind of, you know, his charm. That That's, you know, that's just who he is. I mean, he does remind me of several Massachusetts guys who we knew who I will not name names, but yes. 
I do see like that there's both, you know, light and darkness and Frigo. So the soundtrack of this is really great. Yeah, I love the soundtrack of this. I mean, this has like every song that you would want to have. I mean, we start with Bastards of Young, which is a great song, Replacements. I mean, that's coming right out of the gate. I mean, you have, you know, Husker Du in here. You have The Cure. You have Crowded House. Crowded I, House. The yeah. Dome Dream is over, like was my Crowded House Gateway song. I don't know if I've talked about Crowded House much on the show, but they're like my number one favorite band of all time. Yeah. And it was like so nice, like watch a movie where they like use that song and it's so good. Um, it's during the fireworks scene, you know, and it's like a song that really has like a nostalgic, wistful quality to it already. And to hear like that playing when like you know there's so many different things happening in that scene like this is when kind of Brennan and M you know they're getting closer together and then Joel is there too who's really good friends with both of them but also probably has the thing for M and kind of sees that his friends are getting together too which like I think, like, we've probably all kind of been in that situation before. Oh, yeah. I've definitely been the third wheel, and it feels really awkward because you're friends with everybody, and you're all hanging out, and it's, like, cool that people are getting together, but then you're like, oh, shit, I don't really have friends anymore because they're going to want to hang out as a couple. And then, you know, if you had feelings, you know, for, for the same person, I mean, everybody's had that. I mean, when we were younger, it's just kind of like... I felt like the pool was smaller. Everybody, you know, went out with other people. Everybody was just kind of in that same group. That's just kind of what happened to me, you know, yeah. at every stage growing up. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I remember that happening so many times to myself, to other people. Like, you know, when you're in, like, this little group, that's the kind of stuff that happens. Like, people pair off, they get together, then they break up, and then there's just so much going on. It's, it gets really complicated. Yeah, and then you always have, like, this drama thing going. It's just, like, I don't know if anybody means it. I mean, I think sometimes people get, like, excited by the drama of it, especially if where you live is kind of boring. You're like, all right, we've got this <laughs> as-the-world-turns moment. You know what I mean? Like, maybe I should wear a disguise. I don't know. Well, you know? I think we've seen this, and like some of the other movies that we've done during the series like Dazed and Confused I think we definitely had this you know with like the different people coupling up yeah. and then you know other weird stuff going on off the side you know we have all those types of things in that and then we had it in Wet Hot American Summer also you know <laughs> where there's course. like you're in the small group so people are like you know getting together with different people and stuff so I think it's a real facet of this type of movie, too. This is like another coming-of-age movie. It's a little more cerebral and angsty, I think, um, in its own way than the other ones that we've done. But it does kind of have that nostalgia quality that we find in Dazed and Confused, except instead of the 70s, it's supposed to be the 80s. To us, it feels like the 90s. It was actually shot in the 2000s, so kind of spans many years. Spans time, as they say. Looking at this when we were younger, everyone had a lot more sense of maturity, which was weird. Because a lot of times, you know, especially, you know, myself and, and other people I knew, we were doing things that young people would do. But then you could also shift gears and it would become this very serious situation. You know what I mean? It was like S.E. Hinton, life and death stuff, you know? 
And that's that's what I find in this film is people handle these extremely difficult situations pretty damn well and in a pretty level headed way. I mean, again, they're still acting out, but it's I don't know. It was like so weird growing up because it's like we were adults and we were kids and we were proud of both. And it was just like I remember people that would be an adult 80 percent of the time. Then they'd cut loose you know, and you'd be like, oh, my God. You know what I mean? You're like, you're just like, run. It's like Animal, you know, from the Muppets. You know what I mean? You're just like, rawr, rawr. Like, holy shit, bro. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, we kind of have a character that is a bit outside of things with the character of Connell, um, who is like that guy who's like older and thinks he's cool and stuff. And then he kind of like is like unleashing his you know childishness right in these like relationships that he has with these girls even though he's married i mean definitely seen that in my life too yeah it's look it's a very weird situation when you see people regress and i'm not saying being playful or being like a kid but yeah you know what i mean like you're married and then you're going around to other women trying to impress them. You're making up these stories to impress them. Like that Lou Reed story is the worst. Shed a light on love. Well, you know I what mean, I mean? Shed a light on love, dude? Well, we think he's cool, too, at the beginning. like Because we're kind of seeing things through Brennan's eyes, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's also Ryan Reynolds. I mean, and this is a very rare kind of role for him to be like this kind of dickhead who is actually not cool, but a total loser. Yeah. Um, he never plays like that, you know? I mean, he. when we look at a, another movie we did, Just Friends, yes, he kind of had a loser side to him, but he was also still super cool, even though he was kind of a dork. But in this, he's pretty awful, and he just seems cool. So Brennan at first thinks he's cool also, because he believes this bullshit about Lou Reed. <laughs> and then by the end, you know, they've been through all this different stuff. You know, Brennan knows what a jackass Connell really is. And then he hears him telling this story, which he would never tell Brennan, about how he jammed with Lou Reed. And he says the, the name of the song wrong. But, you know, it's all these impressionable young girls who don't know anything about it then you realize the reason he would never tell Brennan the story is because Brennan would then have immediately known that he was a bullshit artist. Yeah. You know, and so it all comes together, and you realize that Connell is a total idiot and a dick. And, yeah, I just, I think it's interesting because, again, I do think we know people like this, like... You know, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like Wooderson unmasked or something. If Wooderson wasn't actually the coolest guy, Matthew McConaughey, in uh, Days and Confused, it's like Wooderson without all of the friendly charm and a wife and yeah. just you know, there, there's just like there's a, a lot of problems with this character. It is really nice to see. Ryan Reynolds unabashedly play someone that sucks this much. <laughs> and it's not playing someone that sucks for laughs. You know, yeah. like, I mean, we, we've seen him do that in, in many different movies. Even in Just Friends, he's a prick. But it's funny. Yeah. This is, this guy is just a prick. He's an asshole. Yeah. yeah. 
And it's cool because he's using his natural thing that he has to do it. Like, I mean, we've talked about this before, that Ryan Reynolds, to us, is kind of just like a, a, a Chevy Chase, you know, thing that he's doing mm-hmm. all the time. Like, he's just calling back to, like, that Chevy Chase thing, which really works for him because he's tall, he's, like, got a f- really quick sense of humor, and he's witty, and he's smart, which was, like, the Chevy Chase thing. Yeah. But in this case, he's using all of those things for evil, you know? It's Yeah, he's got this self-assuredness that really gives you Chevy Chase. Something about the appearance, the, the condescension that he has, you know, the way he looks down on people. He's very quick, just like Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase has had some roles that weren't purely comedic that I can think of. But this is like... If it if if there wasn't even the, the slightest hint of comedy, the only thing that that's funny for me with Ryan Reynolds in this is again instead of satellite of love saying shed a light on love because yeah. again I love these people that that try to impress and they lie and they don't even know what they're saying. Well, I mean, and that's his whole thing is that he you know and he get he's trying to give Brennan advice mm. in different places in this and. And part of the advice that he's giving is just to dissuade Brennan from continuing to go with M. Which is so slimy. It's really gross. Because he thinks, you know, Brennan thinks this is his friend. And I've also had that before, too. You think somebody's your friend and you realize they're just putting you to the marsh with the 90-foot radioactive alligator that's going to bite your face off. Yeah, because... And you're like, thanks, sport. Because they want you out of the picture. Yeah. Yeah, for themselves. But, you know, he's doing that. At the same time, I think he's also trying to really give Brennan advice. Like, but his advice to him is to act cool. You know, his advice to him is to not be yourself, to try to impress people, which we find is what Connell actually does. We don't know who Connell is. We only know who Connell is pretending to be so that he can impress everyone. Well, Connell, what we know is that he has a single parent. It's his mother, and he looks after her because she calls at one point, and he has to go back home. He actually has Brennan with him in the car, and they smoke the joint. I kind of feel like Connell's relationship with Brennan, there's a few things happening. Um, One of them is he's actually trying to be a dad, because we don't know this. This is never spoken, but maybe Connell's you know, wife wants to have a kid, you know, and he's scared of being a father, right? This Connell definitely seems like a guy that would be scared of commitment. Absolutely. And he wouldn't know how to, how to work, you know, with, with the kid. And I feel like he's kind of testing that out in a way with Brennan to see what he could do. Also, Connell, his father is gone as well. And he can tell that Brennan is completely out in the weeds. He doesn't know what he's doing at all. You know, Brennan's life has been completely turned upside down. You know, Brennan's father, you know, is in the throes of depression and alcoholism. He's inaccessible, you know. Yeah, well, and I mean, even past that, his failure uh, is what ruins Brennan's life, basically. I mean, Brennan was supposed to go on this big Europe trip and then go to Columbia in the fall. And, you know, the day that he graduates... His parents are like, well, we didn't really want to ruin your graduation, but we can't, you know, help you do your Europe trip and we aren't going to be able to help you when you're at Columbia because your dad, you know, has kind of been demoted at work. 
And I think that, you know, there's an implication that his drinking could be the reason that he was demoted. Oh, I never thought of that. I never thought of that. he just is always drinking and he has the whiskey bottle in the car. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just think that something's going on here. Um, But the idea is that the dad is not, you know, cool. And this kind of kicks off the movie with Brennan being let down by people who should not be the ones letting you down. Yeah. And then throughout the course of the movie, he just keeps being let down and let down and let down by practically everyone. Well, the people that don't let him down are the new people that he meets. You know, I would say, namely... You know, Martin Starr, Joel. Joel doesn't let him down. I don't think so. I mean, they have like a a bit of a a kerfluffle at one point. Sure. Where, you know, uh, Joel quits and is just like he can't do it anymore there. And he's pissed because Brennan, you know, has has M, but he is, you know, also went on a date with Lisa P. Um, And... He's pissed. He's like, why would you do that when you have, you know, this great person already? And, you know, they seem to kind of get past it. But I think Joel almost kind of reminds Brennan of who he's supposed to be, you know, because Brennan has been this guy who has, he doesn't really fit in with regular guys, like all of these people. And that's kind of what I had started to get at when I was bringing up Connell's advice to Brennan, Connell's trying to tell him to not be himself. He keeps, like, reinforcing to him, you shouldn't be yourself. But being himself is what actually gets people interested in him. Like, it may not have worked at college with that girl from the beginning, but M likes him for who he is. She's interested in what he has to say. You know, I feel that Lisa P is interested in him, because he is not like all the other guys who are just trying to get in their pants. And he also has graphs. Well, yeah. But I, I think it's more than that. You know? It's I, I feel like the Lisa P thing. I mean, the, yeah, I'll get to that. But the Connell situation, once again, the advice that he gives Brennan to not be himself, that's actually what Connell does. It is exactly so what So it's like does. he's he is trying to give him advice that he that he has used in his whole life. This is how he's been with all of these different women and you know that's triumphant, right? You know, and like again, you you just spin this Connell backstory. Maybe he was a geek, maybe you know he had no one. Nobody wanted to go out with him. Nobody wanted to be friends with him. And so it's like let's just invent this person and that's who I'll be. And it works and his friend uh Brennan's friend from the beginning is all trying to get him to not be himself too. He's just like, you know, you're still a virgin. You should just, you know, get with whoever you can just to, you know, get get it out of your system or whatever. And, you know, we come to find out that that's not who Brennan is. Like, he has had chances to sleep with girls. And he didn't take them because he really didn't have a connection to them. Like, you know, girl he'd been dating. He was, like, reading Shakespeare. The sonnet made him realize that he didn't actually love this girl. He goes to her house to tell her. And this is, you know, the day when she finally wants to have sex with him. And he doesn't do it, you know. And M is, like, surprised and impressed by that. It's nonverbal. But, like, she's clearly like, wow, 
You know, he, she's like, you didn't just screw her anyway, you know? And he's like, no, like it never crossed his mind. You know, there is something here, which is the idea that a lot of young men have of what will impress women is just so far off base, <laughs> you know, because you get all these different messages, you know, from the media or your misguided friends who don't know what the hell's going on to begin with. And when you are just a true and honest person, that is something I feel that makes you appealing. And with Lisa P., I, I thought on that again, and yes, you are right. She does want to be with him because he is different. He is confident. I mean, I know he's still anxious, but he seems solid. It, it's not like any of these other goobers, like the guy that comes up trying to get her to go to Judas Priest at the Civic Arena, <laughs> you know, and he's going to work the Mercedes dealership, and he's going to get this gold Mercedes and all this bullshit. You know, it's not like that at all. You know, Brennan is just like, hey, I'm hanging out. This is who I am. And with Lisa P., we actually get a backstory with her and that, you know, what happens with her father, that he hurt himself on the job. She's helping out the family. And you feel like she really wants to speak to someone about her feelings. And she feels like Brennan is someone that she can do that with. Well, without having to worry about if he's just going to immediately try to get in her pants. Yeah. Like, because that's all anybody else is doing. Like, every that's all anybody cares about. And they just see her as, like, a sex object. But he actually, like, talks to her and asks her questions about her family. And, you know, tries to engage her in conversation. And, you know, I'm not saying that that works for everyone. Because, obviously, you know, Joel, I think, is kind of a person who is a little bit different. Like, Brennan is a little bit different. And I think that's how they connect. Because they actually talk to each other and, you know, I mean, Joel is himself also, but with him, it doesn't really get him anywhere. Um, and when it does, it's like backfires. I mean, I think one of the worst, saddest kind of things in this is uh, when he kind of, you know, makes out with the red haired girl when they go to Razzmatazz. Right. And, you know he kind of thinks maybe something's happening there. And when he, when he goes to talk to her at work, you know, and gives her the book that he had told her about a Google book. Um, she basically rejects him and says, you know, uh, it's because she's Catholic and she can't date a guy that's not Catholic. And I feel that's just an excuse. She was drunk and she like got with him kind of unplanned and, he isn't somebody that she would date normally if she, you know, because she would be judged by her peers because Joel is just like a huge nerd. Well, I also have to say that moment in the film is absolutely heartbreaking for me as well because you can see that Joel really thinks he has a connection, something that he's building on, and, you know, he doesn't have anything. And, it, yeah, it hurts so much. And then, you know, he tells M. And I love it. I love that M comes out and just reads this girl the riot act. You are not my friend. You know, you're anti-Semitic. What, do you like apartheid as well? You know what I mean? She's yeah. just like shuts it down in front of all the people that she's with. And I love that because, again, it makes you think about the fact that there are real friends here. You know, it, it's just like, okay, 
you know, with Joel, he may not ever be with M in that way, but she does really care about him as a friend and she is there for him. Yeah. You know, and that's that's what I like to see in this is you have these friendships, these relationships. And, you know, a lot of times we've talked about it before. These friendships come when you have to do something lousy together, like work at a job. That's like terrible. This. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, these type of jobs. I mean, oh, man. I mean, there are just so many horrible things. Like, the hats off to Larry thing, okay? <laughs> okay. All right. So, the hats off to Larry game, you know, there's that scene where this guy is freaking out because he keeps throwing the ball at the hat and the hat doesn't move. And then he goes and he attacks Joel. And then he's going to attack Brennan. You know, it's like, fuck. But, you know, I'll tell you, what I used to have to do is there was a driving range as well at this place. And you would have to drive this old Chevy pickup, okay? And it had no air conditioning, and you had to roll around, and like, I don't know, somebody came up with this idea, which was horrible, but it did work. You know, it would be so hot out there. Just wind up the windows in the truck and drive around for a while, then open them. Then it feels like a breeze, okay? But when you're out there, you know, on the driving range, you have to drive very slow, because the apparatus at the front of the truck that catches the balls can get jammed very very easily if you go too fast. And every time I drove it, you know, I'd be like, oh man. And so I would have to get out. Now, when you have to get out of the truck, the people at the driving range would actually be shooting the balls at you. They'd be driving the balls at you. Trying to hit They'd you. They would be trying to hit you. Like, so it was just like a nightmare. Like you're trying to fix the front of the truck, the ball catcher, and then you have all these golf balls going off the truck and getting right near you. Which is just like, yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah. Like, people can be, like, mega vicious when when you have these type of things. Well, I think that's just the same as working in any kind of, like, service job or kind of, like, menial job. Is that, like, people look down on you and feel like they can treat you however they want. Yeah. I've been very fortunate that I really haven't had any of these jobs. Ugh. I started working at the courthouse as, like, a assistant in the clerk's office when I was like 15. Yeah. And so I had like professional jobs pretty much from the time I started working. And then, you know, I started working at a bank in college during my summers. So I was actually a Nepo baby. My, <laughs> my mom worked at the bank and I got a job at one of the other bank branches. So Nepo. That's pretty great. That's pretty great. You're <laughs> you're a bank Nepo baby. I had a lot of jobs that were lousy. Um, I had jobs that were better as time went on. You know, I, I had some pretty cool jobs later on. But when I was younger, I was really looking for just like a one-off type of thing and just something different. Yeah. And I thought this was going to be a really fun summer, um, but <laughs> it wasn't. I mean, no one liked me at the park. I had like a buddy, you know, when I first got there, but then... You know, because when we were all drunk and I didn't want to drive a staple in my arm, I oh, the, embarrassed him. Yeah, guy. yeah, exactly. I think you told that during this actual schools out series, maybe. Well, it's like it's just a really appropriate story for this type of movie. <laughs> it really is. It's like, yeah, I, I mean, very quickly, I was at a party and it was just me, my friend, and this other guy. And they were driving staples into their arm as hard as they could to prove, you know, they were tough. I told them it's stupid. I don't want to do it. And this one guy goes, I thought you told me your friend was fucking hardcore. And it was like, uh, okay. And yeah, so basically I was, 
I was a pariah. And just like in, in the show, you know, just like in Adventureland, you have people working with you in pairs most of the time, unless you're out, you know, on the, the golf ball catcher on the driving range. Um, and the guys seem to have much shittier jobs overall. You know, the ladies work ski ball a lot of the time, something that was covered. Uh, the actual rides, you know, there were go-karts. Mm. There was tank tag. Uh, people would, like, go and, like, ba- bake out the, the tank and tank tag, uh, which is crazy. The, the reason that that could happen was it was like tank tag was just inside of this cage, like the, this mesh net. And on the outside, people could actually pay to shoot tennis balls at the tanks from the outside. So if there wasn't anyone playing tank tag, usually there were two tanks fighting against each other, and then you also had the people around you shooting at you. If there was no one in there driving any of the tanks, people that worked there had to drive the tanks so the outside people could shoot. Okay. Yeah, I know. It's it's crazy stuff. Just to get shot at. Well, I'm not going to say the bank was like some awesome job or whatever. Did you bake it out? No, I didn't smoke pot ever. Um, Bake out the vault, you know what I mean? I got to change some bills, go on a lunch. I didn't ever work at these jobs where I was working with people my age. I was only working with people who were like, you know, 45 and over. So (laughs) I didn't have these kind of experiences because everybody I worked with, I was like the one person who was there for the summer or for an after-school job, but everybody else there was, like, my friend's mom or something who was older and, like, it was their normal nine-to-five job. Okay. Okay. I just, I thought it would get a little wild in the vault. No. Everyone there was, like, 60 years old. I mean, maybe when I left for the day or something, but not that I'm aware of. Older people can party, too, I didn't say that they couldn't, but I lived, you know, I lived in Mississippi, yes. People smoked indoors all the time there, but I didn't ever see anybody smoking a cigarette in the vault, and nobody I worked with smoked except for me. I um, would get to courier because in the summer, like... I was the student and I was trying to make extra money and you could get extra money if you did the courier. So I would work all day and then I would take the work, they called it, mm-hmm. in a bag up to the main branch. The work. I yes, it. we would take the day's work and up, up to the main branch to be processed. My mom actually worked in the processing room. So she worked in this room with a computer that was the size of the room and like put through all the checks and all this type of stuff and encoded everything so that it would be, you know, electronically processed. So you would actually physically have to take all of that stuff from your branch to the main branch. And I did that so I could get extra mileage. That's pretty cool. Taking the work outside. It was cool. I was like couriering the work. I love that. I like yeah. that. It's like so official. Yeah. I'm taking the work on a walk. So, you know, that's, I ended up doing that a lot because it gave the normal people who worked at the bank a break so they didn't have to drive the 20 miles to go drop off the work. When I worked at the bank, I used to take the work into the vault. <laughs> you know what I mean? I. <laughs> the vault is not as glam as you somehow seem to think it is. Yeah, it's where but the action is. I, you know, this these are the kind of jobs I had. So I never worked at a restaurant. I never worked at an amusement park. 
I never really worked retail until much later in life when I worked at a bookstore as a second job. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I've had a lot of weird jobs. The weirdest one I've ever had, I don't know if I've ever mentioned it on here before, was we were literally taking a tour in Massachusetts, my mother and I, of the Artemis Ward House. And my mother and I were going through, and the lady that was giving the tour said, look, I actually need to leave for a little bit. Can you and your son give the tour of this room? And so I spoke about the cannonballs. You know, it was like these little cannonballs that were just in a closet, I think. It was totally weird. That's but so yeah, strange. I mean, yeah, so it was just like, I don't even know if we got paid. Maybe we did. I was a kid at that point. I wasn't privy to any cash, you know, if it traded hands. But yeah, my mother and I, just on a tour, were enlisted then to give part of the tour when this person took off for about an hour or so. That's interesting. It's pretty good. Well, one thing I did have at the bank job the bank job haha ha. um <laughs> the that, vault? that made me think of this movie is we had muzak that Ooh, played music. so uh occasionally i would hear a song that i actually knew getting played as muzak mm. and it was my reaction was similar to brennan when he keeps hearing amadeus oh yeah and he's like can i have an ice pick for my ears you know because <laughs> Uh, Crowded House. I once heard the song Pineapple Head by Crowded House being played over the music. Mm. And I was just like, no, this is awful. You know, I have to tell you that Amadeus, Rock Me Amadeus, was a song I never actually ever heard enough growing up. <laughs> I loved the song, and, you know, I would only hear a piece of it. And, you know, I remember uh, my cousin Patrick was very cool. He'd give me you know, mixtapes with songs that I liked to listen to the radio. And I had a Rock Me Amadeus. And, you know, he got it from the radio. So it's like, you know, the radio guy would always talk going in. So you kind of miss the beginning or maybe you just turn to the radio station and hit record. Very cool to have it. But it was just like, I always wanted more Rock Me Amadeus. Mm -hmm. Like, you remember the day, literally, I played how many versions of Rock Me Amadeus? And I didn't complain even once, because I also could probably listen to that 15 times in a row and be fine. It's a fun song. And there's so many variations. Want? There's so many variations, as we yes. found out. And I was with, you know, a group of Germans a week or two ago, like actual Germans from Germany who were here on vacation, and, uh, you know, I don't really know any German, but I, I was able to use Poo Poo Lear. And that was very good. That was like a big moment. They were really impressed that I had that word. It means popular. Yes. Um, yeah, the, the soundtrack of this is great. And I like all of the stuff in it. It's funny, like, because, you know, the, the people in this who are kind of the main characters are a little too cool for, like, the disco-type music <laughs> yeah. that's playing um, at Razzmatazz. I like that, too. Like, they played Obsession, and they played this song by Expose. I loved Expose in, like, 1987 when I was, like, nine years old. So, I liked all of it. I enjoyed pretty much everything in this. I liked Expose. I really liked the song Obsession. These songs I just could never get enough of. 
you know, and I started like putting my boombox up to the television <laughs> and I would just let it record and I would hopefully catch a tune because if you got it on VH1, you got it on MTV, they would play the whole song. Yes. You know, and so you'd have it. Like if you go, try to get it off the radio. They talk over they the talk, intro. You yes. miss it, you know, and you're like, oh, it's the end of it. Let's get it. The worst is you're trying to record a song off of the radio on your cassette player and you're, you know, spinning around and you hit the song you love and you're like, oh, it's almost over. And you hit record. So it's over. And then they go in this long commercial break. You're like, I'll change it. And then guess what? The next channel up has the song. It's already in progress. And if you just went to that channel, you would have gotten your song. That did not happen for me in Mississippi because we only had like 800 country music stations oh. and like one rock station. Okay. So I would only listen to that one. However, like, okay, Don't Dream It's Over by Crowded House is actually a great example of this because I loved the song. I had heard it in the miniseries of Stephen King's The Stand. Yeah. And this was, you know, TV. So I heard the song and I'm like, oh, I love this. What is it? I didn't know what it was. I missed the end credits, so I didn't know who sang it. I didn't, you know, we didn't have the internet. I'm like, I need the song. I'm freaking out, you know. So they, it kind of had a little resurgence, I think, in popularity from playing on that show. So they would play it on the radio. But they would be like, this was in that Stephen King movie, The Crow. And I'm like, what are you talking about? But the Stephen King movie, The Crow. literally what they said on the radio. Uh, yes, I, I was recall like, that. That was not the it was, pro, and it was not Stephen King. I'm like, what are you talking about? I remember when Clive Barker wrote The Shining. <laughs> exactly. It was incredible. Yeah. But that was why I was just like, oh, my God, these people are stupid. But they played the, they would play the song, and I kept recording the radio every day trying to get them to say who the band was. Mm -hmm. And they would say, it's from that movie, but they would never say who it was. It's from The Crow. Well, I mean, and later on, after, you know after the stand miniseries was available again i watched it and i realized that they actually say it right in the the movie molly ringwald says like oh crowded house and then she puts like the 45 on her <laughs> record player but until the song played i wasn't like trying to listen for who the band was so anyway way too long of a story i finally one day had taped the radio and i was playing it back and they played the song, and they said, that was Crowded House. I was, like, so happy. I went and got in my car and drove, like, the 60 miles to the nearest music store to buy a Crowded House tape immediately. They instantly became my favorite band. I went back and bought all their other tapes. I listened to the tapes until the writing wore off. I had had to tape them back together because the tape had ripped. Like... I loved them. But by that time, they had broken up, and I was like, oh, I'll never get to see them. Well, fast forward many, many years. We have seen them a ton of times. We just saw them two times in a row, two nights in a row, like a month ago. And it's the best. My life is charmed. <laughs> it's a really good band. I mean, it's a really good band, Crowded House. I didn't know much about them. You got me in on it. I was I, like, oh, yeah. I've indoctrinated many. I'm using the show now to, to you know, seed Crowded House amongst our listeners. It's a Crowded House beacon. <laughs>
Adventureland has so many good songs in it. It's just like I can't believe this collection exists. Pale Blue Eyes is a song that I love from Velvet Underground. And this movie uses it twice. And they use it perfectly both times. Pale Blue Eyes is a song that is so surreal that you can't believe your feet are on the ground. You know what I mean? You're just like, wait, really? I'm here? You know, it's a song that makes you feel like it's, you know, 3.39 in the morning, you know, and it has a light rain outside and nothing else around you really matters. You know, you're just alone in your own space. And yeah, that, that's that's the vibe. Even when you're with someone, there, there's something about Pale Blue Eyes that just has this loneliness to it. It has this longing to it. And, and it, it just, it's like, it sounds sleepy. You know, it, it kind of like makes you mellow out. You can always pull something new out of it. it it's an amazing song that just amplifies and subdues all at once. Well, it's funny because I read in the trivia on IMDb, that the kind of central kind of musician that it was supposed to be about was not Lou Reed, but Neil Young initially. And when Brennan goes to apply to work at Adventureland, he has a Neil Young t-shirt on. Right. Um, but, and Neil Young has some great music, but I'm pretty glad they switched it to Lou Reed. So even though I, I actually wasn't a great big fan of Lou Reed or Velvet Underground before this movie... The music that they pull from him is so great and so appropriate here. And it seems exactly like the kind of music that Brennan and M would bond over. Oh, yeah. And yeah. like Pale Blue Eyes is almost kind of like their song. Well, yeah, because it really. Okay. The two of them being in the same place at the same time is strange because their destinies feel very different you know i feel like we're looking at a much more academic and practical life for brennan that's what i'm thinking about i'm thinking a, a traditional path he's going to go with his friend who later shits out on him you know and he's going to be hanging out with them another person who lets him down right it, it's time. just like he's going to be you know going that path he's going to be you know putting in the time it's going to go well but it's not jumping off the diving board with a blindfold on, which is what he eventually does. And M, you know, feels like she is that character that is going to go, you know, to the outside to find what she needs. Because her home life is not very good. You know, her father, you know, just isn't really, you know, doing much. And then her stepmother and her, there's a lot of friction you know, yeah. and she like doesn't seem to even know who the hell she is at this point. She's got grief, you know, from her mother passing away from cancer. That's horrible, you know, and it's just like you want to get away. Well, and Be it's like that broke her dad in yeah. a way. And, you know, it's almost like he doesn't want to have any feelings. And then he's with this person who is a nightmare, basically. Her stepmom is a terror, especially to her. And, you know, I think that we just have another example of a character who's really let down by people who she shouldn't be let down by. Yeah. And for them to have a moment 
where they're actually able to kind of, I don't know, be together and in a way, I don't know, share their sorrow. I, I just, you know, I don't feel like necessarily that was something that was really easily available for either one of them. Like they have friends, they have people they hang out with, but I can't really see, you know, Brennan being like, Hey, Frigo, I want to talk about this. Right. He'd just punch him in the nuts. <laughs> you know what I mean? Again, Frigo does everything that he can. And then we have Joel, right. And Joel also, you know, he has this longing, he has this depression, he has this outsider thing happening. But I feel like if you talk to Joel about your feelings, I feel it would become a philosophical discussion. Because he intellectualizes everything. Yes. You're absolutely right. Yes. I mean, that's the whole thing with, with Joel, um, is that he he has a lot of feelings, but he doesn't talk about them in terms of them being feelings. He, like, does bring it to, like, an intellectual, philosophical level to reason it out, because that's just the way he's made. Um, and, you know, I think that Brennan has more of a romantic soul, you know? And so for him, it's not about the intellectualizing. Brennan wants feeling. Like, he wants to go out in the world and have feeling. Yes. This is why he wants to do, like, this travel writing and stuff is because he is a feelings seeker. Um, But he is also, like, intellectual. So he wants to, you know, he kind of wants both. And when he gets feeling about stuff, it tends to bum him out, mm. you know? I think that he, he wants, like, these big experiences, but then when he has these big experiences, like being let down by your parents, like, you know, having to, like, compromise your ideals, it's not what he wanted it to be. And yet, at the same time, it's an experience that he can use to kind of explore his, you know, sorrow or explore his um, disappointment. And, you know, like when he gives that mixtape to M, he's like, this is all these bummer songs, you know, <laughs> because it's like he just wants to, like, really feel how bummed out he is, you know, and, and he shares that with her because he thinks that's something that she'll respond to, and she does. It's the honesty, and I feel like with M... She's in such a rough place that I feel that she wants to anesthetize. She does not want to be present. And it's it's Brennan and just this innocence that he brings to love, this purity that he brings to this courtship of her that gets her to go, oh, my God, you know, what have I become? You know, what I've been doing? I'm, I'm sleeping with Connell. I don't even want this. You know, it's just like it makes her go, okay, I want to like take stock of my life and change it up. Yeah. And, you know, that that's what she says. I mean, not all the words come out. I mean, particularly when, you know, we have that scene where they break up, you know, when you see, you know, Brennan show up, you know, after M has just left Connell's mother's house. You know, when they have that scene, she's trying to say, like, I, I was trying to get everything together. This is not what I wanted. It was my mistake. But he just doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't he isn't open enough to understand, you know, what's going on. Yeah, he's he's only hurt at that point. Well, and it's this is what's interesting. Right. So M wants to, to put down those feelings. She doesn't want to have them. Right. 
And it's just like at that moment, she's being completely open and vulnerable, laying everything on the table. And Brennan is like, I don't want to hear it. Fuck you. You know what I mean? And that's yeah. it. So it's it's a role reversal. Well, and it, but it's, again, him having an experience thinking that he wants to have, you know, these experiences and these feelings. And then when he does have it, he doesn't want it at all because it's really intense and painful. Well, they told me, I remember, you know, different times people have said, you know, with acting, with theater, like you can't be a really good actor until your heart's been broken. And, and so it's just kind of like you hear that and you're like, okay, like, you know, you don't necessarily want to court that. But at the same time, it, it's just like you you kind of like remember that. So somewhere it's in like this checklist in your mind. I mean, for me, it was no problem because a girl's always thought I was shitty. So, you know, I, I had it many times, but I, I guess it just wasn't grand enough. My until point. Later, no, but know? I think like, you know, in my opinion, personally, I feel like you tend to be kind of a Brennan in this. You know, you, when you were growing up, you know, by the time I knew you, not as much. But what I know of you before I knew you is that you were, like, really a feeling guy. Like, you really, you know, had these big feelings and big emotions. And, yeah. you know, it was part of who you were. You know, like, you're an actor. You're dramatic. You know, you want to feel these big things. Right. But then when you feel them and you realize that they don't feel good, it's like you kind of think about it again. You're like, you know, yeah, I'm seeking these feelings, but they're not good feelings. They're pain feelings, and I don't want pain. No, I, I don't want pain. And what it was for me growing up a lot of the time is like, again... When I was younger, I would say I was more mature than I am now. I, You know, I would just be like, you know, I really like you. I'd like to go out, you know, and, and all this. And other people would just want to have fun. And I would approach it, I don't know, like, I guess the 1800s. Like, I thought I'd bring the carriage by. You know what I mean? I'll show you my new stockings. Like Coop from Wet Hot American Summer. <laughs> Basically, like, I that that's why... Like, you you're know, 16, but you're, like, getting really serious about, you know, courting someone. Yeah, I was, <laughs> you know, so I was just, like, on the wrong train. Do you know what I mean? It, it's just, like, I wasn't really you know, acting like a, a younger person. I was just, I was very um, responsible about it. I'm more of a Joel when it comes to the feelings. Like, I do the intellectualizing. I even had a therapist tell me that, so it's true. <laughs> it's, you know, everybody's got, you know, their own thing. And, yeah, for me, I think the overdramatic part of it definitely you know plays in with me because i've spent so much time watching movies and television growing up and yes you you have this romantic side that you want to have these grand wild experiences you know and it's i don't know you think you're writing some kind of like fabled epic you well, know what i mean yeah, i mean everybody deals with pain in a different way you know and you know i think you made a really good point that m does this anesthetizing thing she drinks she's doing drugs she's like screwing connell even though she doesn't care for him at all no just because she almost doesn't care about herself like, yes she just is so over herself that she doesn't care what she does you know and she almost wants to like punish herself in a way 
And then Brennan, I think the way that he deals with his bad feelings is not so good either. He like, you know, kind of wants to go out and make people feel bad for him, you know, like when he's been kind of screwed over by M yeah. by her not telling, you know, the truth. He's like, you know, tells Lisa P about it and Lisa P ends up spilling it to everybody that M and Connell are together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was doing that for sympathy. I mean, I think like, you know, a big part of it for Brennan is that he wants to be seen as the victim. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, that's that, that's another thing, too, is like. Again, when you've been wronged in life and you're an overdramatic person like myself, it's the worst thing that ever happened. Uh, you know, stop the press. You know what I mean? This is the thing. And yeah, I, I mean, it becomes, uh, it can become a very selfish pursuit when you're overdramatic. But again, it, you know, we're dealing with people that are younger that are lost, that are going through some pretty difficult times. So I don't feel that everyone is really running at 100% in this. No, I mean, I'm not judging anyone either. Like, even if that's just the way somebody deals with things now, I'm not really judging it because who's to say, like, what the right way is to do things? Like, again, I feel like I relate to Joel. When Joel is hurt, he kind of um, turns it into a whole thing about his worldview <laughs> and you know it's just like look everything is terrible and it's always gonna be you know and this is just more evidence of that which hello i mean i tend to be that way i'm pretty catastrophizing when something bad happens you know i'm like <laughs> it can't just be like this one bad thing happened it's like yeah one bad thing happened today and a long line of days where one bad thing happens. So what does that mean? That there's always something bad happening. And, you know, I don't think that's a particularly healthy point of view, but it's probably where I go most of the time. Even now, when I'm not so young and inexperienced with dealing with things. I think the best thing to explain kind of the way things work for me is when Brennan is with Lisa P., and she's like, just push the button on the ride. And he's like, no, no, I can't. I'm a games guy. She's like, go ahead. Just push the button. So he pushes the button on the Matterhorn. And then the whole thing just tanks out. And Connell has to come and fix it because it's so fouled up. You know, it, it's just like I kind of have that magic touch. <laughs> you know, that's that's my Everything thing. turns to poop. I, I kind of, yeah, I can do that, you know. And then I'd be like, oh, my God, I pushed the button for the ride. And yeah, that's me. All right. Enough of this horse shit. Let's talk about Bill Hader because he's hilarious. <laughs> Bill Hader's great in this. I, <laughs> I, I really this. I my favorite scene with Bill Hader is when, you know, um, Brennan is running away from the big guy who's going to try to beat him up. Because <laughs> he punched the guy and hats off to Larry. He runs into the office and. Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig are there talking about something. A flute, yeah. I, I mean, we don't even know what <laughs> they're the hell talking they're about talking about. A flute, I think. Um, and <laughs> and Brennan's like, "This guy's trying to kill me," and Bill Hader just grabs this baseball bat, walks out, just goes from zero to a thousand in like a millisecond, 
is like, you don't know what I'm capable of. And it's like <laughs> waving this bat. And the guy just gets scared shitless and like bolts out of there. And then Hater kind of turns back around, walks back in, and then just continues the flute conversation. You know, I was thinking, I don't know, if a flute might be too expensive. Like, <laughs> it's such a great, like, example of, like, what it's like to be a manager in, like, a place like that. Like, I may not have had a lot of these kind of jobs, but I have had jobs where I was, like, a supervisor of, like, you know, entry-level type people who were getting treated like garbage. And when that's happening and you step in and you, like, regulate, it is like that. Like, I would, when I worked at the bank, um, like, after grad school, um, I, I ended up becoming a supervisor because I'd worked at the bank. This was not a Nepo job. I got this one on my <laughs> own because that was when I lived in Massachusetts. But, you know, I was a frontline supervisor and people are horrible to people who were frontline tellers and I would just have to come out and just be like what do you want what are you talking to you know <laughs> and then like instantly I would just be like fine as soon as the situation was resolved so I could really relate to it it felt really real and it was just a really good like funny kind of bit oh yeah I, I mean it's so <sighs> It is so real because, yes, if you're in any type of service job, if you're seeing someone you know being mistreated, someone's mistreating you, you know what I mean? You've got to, like, come up to get the bad guy to go away. And what I like so much about the involvement of Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig in this is that they were perfect as a couple. I completely bought them with this teamwork that they had in their relationship and in the business. Now, this actually ties in with Tommy Boy because both of them were shooting Saturday Night Live, you know, when they were doing this. So I believe they only shot four days on Adventureland. And the things that they got out of those four days are hilarious. That beat, you know, that you just brought up, you know, with the baseball bat, it isn't that Bill Hader grabs the baseball bat. What happens is that Kristen Wiig is still looking at these papers in front of her at the desk. She picks up the uh -huh. bat, tosses it to him. She doesn't even look up just because they know the rhythm of this. It's, and it's so good. Yeah, it's it's the routine for them. Yeah. Well, because we find out in that hilarious scene where uh, uh, Brennan is running the horse race game. <laughs> I love that. And he's high as shit yeah, because yeah. they ate the whole pot cookie. And he just starts saying really inappropriate stuff. And Bill Hader has to like take over. Paulette, which is Kristen Wiig, says that that's how they met. So these two have actually, you know, been together, knowing each other, since they were younger kids working and now, you know, they've gone up the ladder to where they're managing. I actually find myself, like, wondering what they do in the off-season, you know, because this place closes at the end of the summer. So what is what are Paulette and Bobby doing? Oh, man. I mean, when, I don't know. Maybe they do uh, band classes. Maybe they're teachers, you know. They're talking about instruments, you know. Yeah, so this that's is true. Who knows? I mean, maybe they're just, like, event planning. I don't know. They could be. I mean, they're they're so good because... They are, you know, running the place, but they are cool. And the reaction shot of Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig when Eisenberg is toasted 
and calling out the race. And there's like one horse that didn't even move. It's the and, yellow. Yeah, he's like, Eisenberg's like, yeah, the yellow horse has inseminated thousands. That's why he's uh, pretty tired. <laughs> you know? And they cut to Bill Hader and Kristen Wick, And Bill Hader's face is just like, what the fuck? You know, he's like so sad with the... You've been token up? <laughs> You've been drinking drugs? That's what he says. You've been drinking drugs. It's very funny. It's great. It's just these quick, you know, one-two bits. And then they also have that great part where they bought all these bananas. Oh, yeah. And then, like, they've run out of little sticky eyeballs to put on the bananas because they were putting two on each. It's the stuffed banana for a prize. <laughs> and so Kristen Wiig is like, I found these eye patches, you know? And so she's just, like, putting one eye and an eye patch on the bananas. And it looks awesome. <laughs> I would totally get that. I love that. It's, I mean, they have so many, so many. Oh, the so corn many. dogs. Oh, the my God. spoiled corn dogs. <laughs> He's like, how long have these been out? Since yesterday? like they smell a little funny she's like yeah but i mean like they always do and he's like okay uh uh snuffy cook these <laughs> i mean what was the there's one line that, that Kristen wig has that i can't remember that kills me every time do you remember it yes it's when uh bobby is asking brennan if he wants to pick up some extra shifts uh but and he's like sure why you know and he's like well because joel quit and Brennan's like, what? You know, and, and Paulette is like, yeah, um, he's passed on. <laughs> and yeah. Bobby's like, uh, no, he's moved on. She's like, oh, yeah, no, he's moved on. <laughs> the way she said it was, like, super funny. But it's just, like, Hater and Wig as Bobby and Paulette. Yeah, it, it's just, it's, it's the like, the cherry on the Sunday. It just works because, like, they're older than the other people who work at the place mm -hmm. for the most part. But they're not, like, parents older. They're just, like, you know, they were probably in high school when these people were, like, in elementary school, you know? So they're, like, probably, like, five years older than them or something. Um, but they're not like, it's just like enough to be slightly older and like that me makes them in charge. Oh yeah. Slightly older goes such a long way when you're younger. Yeah. You know, like a year even, you the know. The gap, I yeah. I mean, when you're 25 to 30, not a big deal. But when you're like between 17 and 22, that's like world's difference. Like people get down to months, days, yeah. you know, twins get down to seconds. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> just like, it's, it's just My sisters are one it. minute apart and don't you forget it. <laughs> you know who came out first. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So one other thing that I want to mention quickly, just in terms of the acting, is Jack Gilpin, who plays, you know, Brennan's father, fantastic. It's such a sad performance. You know, it's this tragic story. And Jack Gilpin, he's been around for a very long time. And mostly I recognize him from comedies because he's so damn funny. He's got that funny, like, hangdog face. Yeah. And it's just in this, he's playing it completely straight. And it's so sad. It makes it even worse because this is a guy that I always look to to go, oh, he's going to make me laugh. And in this, it's like, oh, man, no. You yeah, know? well, it's bummerific, you know, because he is clearly unhappy like this drinking problem is a serious issue and you know but he seems like a nice guy like wendy malick plays the mother perfect and she's 
horrendous in a great way. Well, the and acting's perfect. No, I, yeah. No, that's my point. Yeah, like yeah. she's kind of a nightmare as a human, you know. And this, this is not the mom that you want. No. And you know, it's very clear that she and Brennan butt heads horribly. Um, he even says like she read his journals and she's nosy and all this kind of stuff. But his dad seems pretty cool. Like, you know, the two of them laugh about the puppets, the Mr. Rogers puppets and things like that. And it seems like, you know, it's possible that Brennan and his dad might have had a good relationship in the past. And maybe that was kind of lost because of whatever's going on with his dad. But yeah, Gilpin is great. Yeah, he's just such a fantastic, fantastic actor. So something I want to bring up. So this happened in Pennsylvania. This was not at Kennywood. This was at like some kind of state fair thing. Okay. We went on the octopus ride together, my cousin and I. And she and I got on to the pod and, you know, <laughs> you know, it went up and it seemed like it would be, you know, a good time. So we're spinning around and round. I start to feel sick and I'm like, oh, I can hang on to it round and around. I'm feeling more sick. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God round and around and I'm like oh, oh oh no my head swung around from the outside to the inside and I started vomiting all over my cousin and so I was like vomiting she was crying and screaming I was trying to yell stop the ride in between you know heaving it was absolutely horrendous she had on like this really nice summer dress I got like puke all over it I had puke all over me my uncle, like, he fucking hated it. You know what I mean? He Like, he, like, put a towel down in the car. He's like, yeah, I just want to make sure this doesn't get on the interior. Oh, God. <laughs> I yeah. was terrible. I, I was so embarrassed. I had a lot of motion sickness issues. I still do, even when I'm not moving. And, uh, yeah, I had many, many moments like that. At, the, at different state fairs and stuff. You threw up on someone wearing a summer dress? I didn't throw up on a person, no. That's good. Um... But, yeah, I definitely, I went on this thing called the Gravitron. I don't know if they call it that everywhere. But it's basically just, like, a big thing that spins around, like, and you're kind of up against the wall, and the G-force kind of pushes you up the wall. Yeah. Um, I love that. It makes me so sick. Really? I can't even think about it. I'm going to start getting sick ooh, right ooh, now. Ooh, ooh, Okay, okay. Um, it's, a, yeah, it's a small closet, yeah. But, like, <laughs> I rode that once in my life, and I came out of it, and I was like, oh, my God. And I, I, I managed to last a few minutes after I got off of that. And I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. So then I got on something called the Scrambler mm. immediately thereafter, which is very similar to the Octopus, except instead of it going up and down, it only is, like, on a flat plane. But it does have, like, the three cars on the an cups. arm it's kind of spinning. It's kind of like a teacups yeah, okay. ride. Um, yeah, so I was riding on that, and I got super sick. It was right after I got off the Gravitron. Mm. And, like, basically it would kind of roll out to the end and then come back in. And any time it would roll to the end, I would just politely puke over the side. <laughs> stop come back to the middle and then we'll go to the end again then i'll throw up again so i kind of had like a good control you know there was another time that i was on the octopus with my sisters and we were all three in like the little octopus car arm or whatever 
and I got super sick and really started turning green and I didn't throw up, but I almost was going to throw up. And my sisters were like screaming for them to stop the ride. Right. Like bloody murder. That that's what we had, but no one And could they stop did it. stop it. So oh, you're <laughs> they lucky. Stopped it and I got off and threw up. Um, but there was another time when I was on like a tilt a whirl mm. and I think that the ride operator was like trying to flirt with me. Oh, did you throw up on him? No. Uh-huh. But he like <laughs> That would have been cool. He was trying to flirt with me and letting me ride the ride longer, which I did not want to do <laughs> because I was becoming seriously ill on this ride and I just wanted to get off. And like, I was so glad when it stopped, I just like ran off of it to leave. But I think he was trying to like, you know, give me a freebie, you know, which Bobby would have been totally down on. Yeah, Bobby. No, no freebies. freebies. No big ass pandas. I never had to give away any stuffed animals. I was never in anything where there was a prize involved. You know, I mean, th- I won a big giant stuffed panda one time playing a golf game. At, huh. I think Liberty Land. I did not do it on purpose. <laughs> It was this game where you, it was kind of like a putt thing, and there were four holes, and there was, like, one that was closest, and then the second one was a little further, and the third one was a little further, and the fourth one was almost all against the back wall. I was aiming for the first hole, and just thinking, well, you know, maybe I'll win a little keychain size, like, teddy bear or something, give it to my sisters. I missed the first hole, so I was like, oh, crap, well, too bad. I, like, gave the club back to the guy. I'm walking away. Everybody around me is like, ah. It went into the fourth hole. Wow. On accident. Wow. So they had to give me, like, this kind of... It wasn't, like, the big... It wasn't, like, the giant-ass panda size. But it was, like, half that size. And I really didn't want it because I had to carry it around all day. But I took it anyway. It was a white teddy bear that had, like, a little green golf cap on (laughs) That's really good. I once won a, a big pink elephant, okay, at the fair, and I was really excited. And I was in high school, and I gave it to my girlfriend, and they were at their summer house, kind of like a cottage. And the next time I saw her, her mother gave it back to me and said, we don't have room for this in the house. <laughs> and wow. I was like, oh, man. Like, I felt like, Shades you Shades know, of Brennan's mom there. Right. Like, I, I thought I had brought, like, the golden fleece. Like, I felt like a champion for a moment. Because I usually well, don't win nice. those things. You know, I felt great about it. But, yeah, I still feel good about it. I want a pink elephant. Well, you should feel good about it. Don't let that person harsh your buzz. <laughs> oh, bad. You know, I think that what makes this, we talked about it a little bit at the beginning of the show, like that this is kind of a weird choice for a comfort film, because there is a lot of like angst in the movie yeah, um, throughout from all the different characters. I mean, but in particular, Brennan and M and their relationship. And then you have, you know, Brennan becomes kind of best friends with Joel, who's a very like angsty guy also. But I think what makes this comfort film to me is the ending um because you do have this big change that brennan goes through and it's kind of interesting uh to look at it because a lot of times a coming of age is where somebody like grows up you know they go from being reckless to being responsible 
And Brennan's coming of age is the opposite, right? <laughs> like, he goes from, like, being responsible and having this, like, really, you know, strict plan of what he's planning to do. That all kind of gets torched. And instead of, like, kind of forcing it or trying to push it, he kind of accepts the mystery of it all and, like, decides he's leaving. And... I think that the wrap up of this movie is so great, you know, where he, it's a kind of a two prong thing. He has that kind of a conversation with Joel on the hill where, you know, free goes in the background shooting Roman candle and acting like he's in Vietnam because he's an idiot. And, you know, Joel and Brennan are talking about different things, you know, with, being a writer and why even bother and you know that that's kind of what Joel is saying like why even bother being an artist nobody cares about us anyway right you know and you know Brennan says maybe you know it's just worth it because you had the passion and then we see him leaving you know and even though he doesn't have this you know spot at Columbia and and all these things that he was planning to do he, like, embraces the idea of just living his life with feeling and in, and experiencing it and embracing it. And that's what he does. He shows up, you know, on M's doorstep and, you know, he tells her that he understands that they can't, you know, be what they were, but that he's okay with that, you know, and he sees her differently than she sees herself. And it's a really nice scene with the two of them, you know, and it, it's like a reconciliation where they understand each other in a different way because they've been through something difficult and it makes them able to kind of move toward having a mature relationship. And I love it. I think it's just a really wonderful ending for these two characters and it does bring that sense of hopefulness that we're, you know, total junkies for. Of course. I, I mean, it's a romantic ending. And I have the feeling that these people are going to stay together. And it ties in. Because much earlier in the film, when they were at the party at Kristen Stewart's house, it's like they end up in the pool together, you know? And then she actually takes his underwear and she's like, you know, I'll wash it for you or I'll dry it for you. And it's funny because, again, it's water because it's raining so much when he sees her in New York, you know. And it's just like, I don't know. It, it's crazy. It, it's just like there's something with their relationship and water, you know. And it's it's just like it brings it back around. You know, we have the raindrops outside on the window and then this is the point where, you know, we actually have Brennan. He's going to lose his virginity because he feels that this is worth it because this is who he loves. Yeah. And then we also have M at this point who has worked through, you know, a lot of what was going on with her. She doesn't I mean, I don't think she's involved with anyone else at this point. And they're just so happy to have another chance. And they're having a chance away from all the bullshit. You know, it, it makes you think about. I mean, this is so weird, but what the hell, right? It makes you think in a way about, like, uh, Romeo and Juliet, you know? I mean, you know, nobody's getting killed or anything. 
But, you know, the two of them, you know, it's just like if they just got the fuck out of there <laughs> and were able to just be themselves. And not have any of this other stuff, you know. And, yeah, she she asks him, does he want to wear the game shirt? Right. And he throws it and says, I never want to see this again, <laughs> you know. And that's the thing. Like, they've moved past it. They've grown from this. And, you know, they can move on with their lives. And you get the sense that they will. And that they will do that successfully. Yeah. It's just like... And there is something about games as well. You know? And that's that's where they worked. Right? And it was these games. They had all these different games going on. These emotional games. And it's like there aren't going to be any more games. You know, it's it's like, you know, and with the water, I don't know. Do you want to say it's a baptism at the end? It's like, you know, they're clean at this point. It's washed off all this stuff. I don't know. Probably going way too deep. But you know what? What I really like about that story with M and with Brennan is it's a fully realized love story. And we end this movie on a very high note. And it's not... It's not anything I took for granted when I saw the film, and I think that's what made it all the more sweet. This film has an unbelievable way of dealing with these dates, okay? When we have these scenes where we have just, you know, a couple out on a date, you know, and the intimacy of the conversation through both the dialogue and the performance, it, oh my God, it gives me goosebumps because there are pieces of those moments where I'm like, oh my God, like I lived this moment. This is a real moment. And it takes a really talented writer director to just zero in on this and to find a cast that can bring it to life in this way. I know who every character is in this and I can understand every emotion and every turn. And and it's beautifully woven. Yeah. And the fact that the place is called Adventureland, right? You know, it's just like, it's like the adventure of life. You know, that's that's what we're doing. We're, we're jumping into the jungle. We're going into the wild, you know, and, and we're not coming back. And it is just like you said, it's this realization of this is what I want to do with my life. And to do that, I have to follow a path that, you know, is not laid out for me. You just really have to, to follow your heart, follow your passion and you'll get there. Yeah. And, you know, with Brennan and M, I mean, how perfect could it be that both of them are following their passion, right? In terms of, you know, what they want to do as a career, their pursuits. And then in terms of relationship, you know, that passion, that's there as well. It's great. It's perfect. Yeah. It's perfect movie. I mean, it's a very smart thing for Greg Matola, the writer-director. Yes. To take his experience working at the real Adventureland, which was called Adventureland, and to be able to see that as an adventure yeah. that would make a good story. And it makes a great story. I love this movie. I do, too. I do, too. All right. Well, thank you for tuning in for episode 81, Adventureland. Um, this was a great one to talk about. I really enjoyed it. Me too. So June is actually a bonus month. Instead of having four weekends, we have five. So that means we're going to get to drop an extra <laughs> schools out. I like selection. saying drop it. Drop it. Drop it like it's hot. Drop it. Uh, we're going to get an extra schools out selection. So next week we'll be back with uh, our fifth schools out series pick yeah 
I mean, we're pretty excited to see what that pick's going to be. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of things here. We've gone back and forth so many times. I think we narrowed it down to two, but I don't know which one we're going to go with. So no, nope. we don't have a clue. You'll just have to find out next week. <laughs> we're following our passion, right? Yes. There is no path laid out. Uh, who knows? I might just become really negative about it. Like <laughs> I, I normally do. It's just no. my thing. No, no. We might just go to New York and fuck it. You know what I mean? I just go follow my dreams. I might just, just cancel the show. Who knows? I, <laughs> I might just, you know, go turn the hose on and have a stand under it as we record the next episode <laughs> so we can feel that passion. Maybe. We'll Maybe. see. Yeah. Well, we'll have to wait for next week to find out. Anything can happen. So, uh, hope you enjoyed Adventureland. Uh, We'll see you next week. And until then, stay comfy. Stay comfy, everybody.